1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to new books in policing, incarceration, and reform. My name is Jeff Lamson, and today we'll be talking with Dr. Julian Goh about his new book, Policing Empires, Militarization of Race and the Imperial Boomerang in Britain and the U.S., released this past September with Oxford University Press. Dr. Goh is a professor of sociology at the University of Chicago and the author of the 2016 book, Post-colonial thought and social theory. Dr. Go, welcome to New Books Network.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Of course. Um, so we'll get going right away here. Uh and first I wonder if you could begin uh our conversation by telling us just a little bit about yourself and how you came to studying uh the history of policing and empire.
0: Yeah, that's a, a really interesting question because I'm actually not an expert on policing at all. I hadn't studied policing um, in my career. Uh, most of my work has been previously on post-colonial theory and um, and and the US Empire. Um, and so actually, my first two sole-authored books were about the US Empire. I had a first book on US colonialism in Puerto Rico and the Philippines. And then I had a second book, sort of comparing on a on a macro historical scale. The patterns and dynamics of the u.s empire for a couple centuries with the british empire that was called patterns of empire so i hadn't really done a lot of work on policing but of course from this research uh, and my prior knowledge into colonialism really um, i I came interested in in questions of policing because colonial policing is a very interesting thing Um, the use of coercion and violence Um, by police in the colonial site, Um, working with the military is a very foundational part of colonialism. Um, And so I also, you know, I always had an interest in colonial policing and and military um, colonial counterinsurgency and so on. But policing itself was not my main interest. What happened was, you know, 2014, I think a lot of us... um, got interested in, of course, what's happening in the United States with police violence against African-Americans and, and, and Ferguson really piqued a lot of people's interest. And for me in particular, it piqued my interest and particularly what piqued my interest was this profound militarization that was quite clear on the streets of Ferguson. Um, we see it now, of course, we almost take it for granted. but. You know, what we saw on the television, a lot of people hadn't thought about it before, hadn't seen it before, was really our police in Ferguson and even Standing Rock as well. Um, our police being tax- uh, paid by um, our tax dollars um, armed as a, as an army would be um, and essentially armed and readied to treat citizens whose very taxes are paying their salaries and for this equipment to treat them as enemies of war. And this was a really interesting thing to me. And as again, as a scholar of imperialism and colonialism, one of the things that conjured, of course, was this image of you know this is not uh, unique to um, what's happening now. This is you see this in the long history of U.S. colonialism, heavily armed police overseas and and in imp- the imperial frontier. So um, I began to think about these connections really, um, and I already knew something about some of the figures. That were involved in u.s policing historically such as a man named august volmer who um was the first police chief at berkeley in the early 20th century very important figure in policing your your historians of policing um who are listening now will know volmer's name probably and a lot of police officials will know volmer's name because he's considered the father of modern policing and and i already knew of him but not because of his policing but because i knew that he had Previously served in the US military and during the Spanish-American War in the Philippines and had been part of the colonial counterinsurgency force of the US military to squash the Philippine-American War. So I, you know, I already knew this stuff and I began to see these connections. And so that really piqued my interest. And, and I get really um really interested in in militarization of police and and how in the hell we got to this point, right? Where Where we see these police officials um or basically police acting as and and armed as armies
1: excellent so i i think that segues pretty well into the second question i had which is before we get into the specific arguments of the book and sort of your your work toward answering some of those questions you just brought up i'm curious if you could talk a little bit about the methodology and your discipline as you come to this work um, like you said a, a lot of work has come out over the past 10 years or so on the history of policing um, from a few different fields um, but this one stands out you talk you write that it's a historical sociology of militarization um, and you write that it permits us to see that police militarization is a social product generated under definite social conditions and there's, and there's a comparative element to your methodology looking at both the British and the US context. So, uh, like I said, we'll get into sort of the specific arguments in a minute, but I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about how that approach to this history offers something new for us to understand the history of policing broadly, but in in your case, the militarization particularly.
0: Yeah, that's also a really interesting question because you know most scholars of policing who are, are coming from sociology departments Tend to be criminologists or ethnographers, right? I'm not going to policing. So a lot of my, you know, um, colleagues work on policing. Is all about it's ethnographic investigations into policing. So, um, you know, to come at it from the perspective of historical sociology, which is a, yeah, a a particular subfield within sociology, is I think I think you're right. It comes at it from a particular um, angle and and has something of a different methodology than either conventional sociological ethnographic studies would be, or statistical studies, which criminologists would do, or for that matter, just pure historians. Um, so for me, as a historical sociologist, there's a couple things that frame what I'm doing. One is that, um, you know, as a as a, as a non, well, as, as, as someone who's interested in history and has studied history, but not confined to the discipline of history. I have a little bit more license to do a couple of things that some historians will probably balk at and probably continue to balk at, which is, A, I can be presentist, right? So driving this book is, how did we get here, right? Um, how did we get to this point? And so I'm, I'm much more able to ask that kind of question, I think in a way that maybe some historians would worry and, and, and dismiss as presentism, right? Um, I don't think I'm presentist in the bad way, but I'm able to ask these questions right up. The other thing is, yeah, I'm I'm able to, I I can go beyond any particular time and place. Um, So the book is looking at the history of militarized policing from the 19th century on in the United States compared with Britain, which again, some historians, um, unless they're comparative historians or sort of global historians might find, you know, that they'll raise their eyebrows at. Um, Because what what we get from so many historians, which is wonderful and totally, absolutely necessary and awe-inspiring, is like very fine-grained, detailed analysis of what happened in a particular set of years. Um, And that that work is great. And um, my book builds upon a lot of that work. But as a historical sociologist, right, I'm interested in A, how we got here, and B, broader patterns um, and broader social patterns over time. Um, And so... You know, it's it's um, not probably for sociologists or even just a basic so- social scientist or even a historian who knows something about social explanation. It's probably not, you know, that weird to say that policing is a social product. Um, but as a historical sociologist, to say that is, is really, I think, has a number of really important implications. It means that we have to look at the social conditions as they change over time and as they shape policing. And so policing can't be obviously seen as the static thing. It's dynamic and it's fluid and it's changing, but it's doing so not in a random way, right? What's happening with policing is shaped by social conditions at the time. And those social conditions are complex and they're changing and they're dynamic as well. Um so, you know, just just to give you um, you know, something, not not to really talk about the arguments directly just yet, but you know, one of the things of the book is is um that I'm talking about is how um colonialism in a sense needs to be thought of as part of the social conditions that shape policing so um so you know i'm interested in the book and how colonialism does shape policing um and i consider you know america's for example america's overseas interventions as part of the broader social landscape that shapes what policing does so that's just you know another example of this kind of social explanation um that's part of my methodology but the other part of my methodology that i think is somewhat unique to this book compared to other sort of historical sociological work or maybe compared to some historians work on policing is that i consider the social to be to include this broader global colonial scope um and that comes from a lot of my work in post-colonial theory and and my work on colonialism where where you know, one of the lessons of it is, look, you can't understand American society, you can't understand British society without putting it in a more global frame, which means historically you can't understand this society without understanding the history of colonialism and imperialism um, that shapes American society or British society.
1: Yeah, and for our listeners, when you get a chance to pick up this book, I think that you'll really find that one of the things that stands out about it is that it breaks, <clears throat> excuse yeah. me, it breaks some of these boundaries around some of the disciplines that I think many historians and other scholars of thing frequently talk about need us needing to do in order to better understand this, uh, but doesn't actually come to fruition very often. Uh, and this book really stands out as a great example of, of, of doing just that, of actually uh, looking beyond disciplinary bounds and, and answering, asking new questions and, and finding new ways to answer them as well. Um, so it's really oh, thank
0: you. Yeah. contribution. Yeah, of course. I take um, that as a compliment. Actually, I take. Um, and you know, I will say it's interesting. I don't know if this is completely off track, but when I think about, say, Stuart Trader's book, which you know I take as sort of a very much, uh, you know, I'm, I'm inspired and influenced also by Stuart Trader's book, Badges Without Borders, where he looks at after in the post World War II period. How police officials in the United States through the Office of Public Safety go abroad and then they are shaping what's going on in other so, so this is also breaking certain geographical boundaries and it's also shaping breaking certain historiographical conventions. Um and I don't think it's an accident that Schrader's trained in American studies. Like officially, I mean, he's a he's a historian, he's an amazing historian, but you know, disciplinarily in terms of institution and in, institutions, he, you know, he's trained as an American study, so he has a little bit more freedom. So um, I do think that being positioned institutionally tangential to the strictures of disciplinary history does provide certain um, certain freedom to transcend these boundaries, right, and and do different kinds of work. And and for me, that means that as a historical sociologist, um, I am positioned in a way that enables me to have a somewhat different angle on things. Of course, yeah,
1: it's it's a helpful. Uh, sort of bit of insight into what makes the book unique and and sort of where the scholarship stands in the larger field um so let's get into uh the specific argument that you're making here you you write that you're attempting to identify and explain waves of militarization in british and american policing and and you do so by accounting for several different logics including logics of racialization and imperialism so could you lay out the central argument of the book for what what does explain these waves of militarization that you identify uh taking place in the British and American context yeah
0: um so that really does that question's great because it cuts it forces one to sort of cut to the heart of of what's going on in this book and i i i, I guess i'd say there's a couple things maybe three things going going on to this argument um one is of course this this waves thing right so a lot, when a lot of people talk about militarization, and just as a side note, militarization, as I define it, comes from the the sociologist Peter Kraska's work where he defines militarization as the adoption by the police, not just of military arms and materials, but also military mindsets, tactics and operations, military cultures. So just to be clear, that's what I mean by militarization. I think that's actually crucial to to think about when we think about militarization of the police. But... um, uh. In any case, just definitionally that's that's what's going on. But in terms of the larger argument, one of the things that people have said, both about Britain and the United States, is that militarization is new, right? That it happens after the war on terror, happens in the nineties in the United States with the um you know, the LISO program, the program by which uh, local departments were able to get military surplus equipment. Or some people go a little bit further back. You know, Elizabeth Hinton in her wonderful book goes back to the war on drugs started by Johnson in the 60s and really begins to pinpoint profound militarization there. Um, I see this, this, these periods, these moments as one set of waves of militarization among others. And in fact, so the first key argument is that There have been multiple waves of militarization over time in Britain and the United States, going back to the very founding of policing in the 19th century. So when the uh, police are founded, the modern police as we know it, are founded in England with the London Metropolitan Police, I see that as a wave of militarization. Um, Similarly, when the United States police forces um, like New York or in the South Savannah, where a couple of departments I talk about, when they create their first modern police departments, I see that as also a, a wave of militarization. And then over time in both Britain and the United States, there are these multiple waves. So that's point A, right? Militarization is 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 deep. It goes to the heart and the very beginning of policing itself, or modern policing as we know it. Um and then the question is, is well, what accounts for these waves? Um and and here there's a kind of twofold story. One is uh, this colonial and imperial story that we've been talking about already. That is that actually, I try to suggest in the book that militarization is not necessarily the best word for what's happening when the police arm themselves um, and adopt these kind of militaristic attitudes. What it really is, is an effect of the imperial boomerang, by which I mean military, uh, police draw, not just from the military per se, but from the tools, tactics, cultures, um, technologies that are developed in the colonial and imperial peripheries, and that are meant to subdue um, racialized, colonized peoples, or uh, victims of empire abroad. Um, And these are created by the police sometimes, the colonial police, for example, but they're also um, created by the military, and in the colonial and imperial peripheries, of course, as scholars know, the the, the line between is colonial police and military is almost you know non-existent, right? And so that's another interesting thing I think going on today is that this blurring of the boundaries between police and the military that's always going on is is sort of itself a colonial phenomenon. Because in the colonies and in the imperial peripheries, the demand for coercion and the the imperative to use force on racialized populations, colonial populations, is so strong that policing and military just become indistinguishable. Um, But yeah, so so what I am finding and what I argue in the book is that each of these waves is really um, an effect of the imperial boomerang. In other words, these tactics and techniques that are created... Uh, for colonial rule or for imperial conquest, that these are what then the police in the United States and Britain bring home and use and and, and re, re sort of change their policing uh departments uh by appropriating those things. Then this the other part of the story is that, you know, this also isn't haphazard, that police officials turn to these colonial methods or imperial methods and techniques and tactics under certain Specific conditions specific to the cities and spaces in which they're operating, and I argue that it has to do with racialized threat. Right. So when when the police perceive a a wave of crime or disorder, um, they tend to see this as a racialized. That is, coming from racialized groups, which is you know not an unexpected phenomenon. But but what what I show is that one of the ways in which they respond to this perceived racialized threat to uh, law and order is by appropriating the tools and tactics and technologies from the imperial or colonial peripheries. Um, And at work here is this somewhat disturbing, but also predictable logic of sort of uh, imperial or colonial analogies being made, right? So police, uh, city officials, they're confronted with this wave of crime and disorder, which they see as coming largely from certain racialized populations, people that they see as inferior, as inherently criminal, as violent, Um, then they turn to the tools and tactics uh, overseas um, to try to deal with that problem, and they essentially what we call militarize the police. But um, they're really predicating that uh, adoption of these colonial uh, and imperial tools upon the assumption that these citizens in Britain or the United States, who they racialize as inferior, as inherently violent, that these citizens are basically like colonial subjects overseas. Um, and one of the things you learn when you understand colonial conquest, colonial rule, colonial policing, or imperial conquest, is that uh, the peoples to be ruled or conquered are always racialized as inferior, racialized as um as uh inherently violent um often arguments are made about how they're savage and barbarian and therefore are irrational they don't understand law they only understand the language of force so one of the things i find in the book is that when you have this racialized racialization of crime or disorder in the us or britain um police officials and and the public generally um begin to talk about these criminals or these these rioters in exactly the same way that that uh colonial officials uh, talk about, or settlers, colonial settlers talk about colonized people. So there's this analogy that brings the boomerang home and essentially uh, transforms the police into these um, heavily militarized organizations of force and coercion, and we call that militarization. But what's really going on is um, the imperial boomerang coming home to face down perceived racialized others in our cities and on our streets
1: so it's remarkable to hold all of those interventions together simultaneously that's one of the fantastic things about this book that you are do you're making so many fantastic points all together um and and you do so really well and we're going to get through several of them um but uh, to start i think i just want to hold for a moment on the periodization with the multiple waves here because there's this meta-narrative that runs through a lot of the historiography on policing and at least in the united states um and to, it britain sort of fits in there as well where you know modern policing is born in the middle of the 19th century there's an era of professionalization modernization like 1900 to 1930 or so then there's a punitive turn somewhere around the 1960s and so there's these sort of like marking points and you've reconfigured roughly those marking points in a in a distinct way by framing them around this imperial boomerang. Why does that matter to us? Like why like why is that an important thing for us to reframe reframe that historiography or that big arc of American policing? What is, what work is that doing for us in seeing it through this other lens?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and you know, to be perfectly honest. I actually wasn't 100% familiar with that conventional historiographical frame, like when I started this. Like, I didn't know that there was a so-called professionalization movement, and I didn't know that the historians classified this punitive term. You know, all these things I had to learn about them. Um, but what I came to see through my research is that yes, these waves, and this is a really interesting point. Actually, I wish you had read my manuscript and gave me feedback on it Jeff, because um, I would have sort of connected it with the historiography more so and maybe more so as a revisionist historiography. I don't know you can tell me if it's revisionist or not but yeah um I I um I guess I would say that why it's important to sort of rethink or understand um these waves that correspond to these other moments um in terms of this Imperial boomerang effect and this racial 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 racialized threat I guess you know for me it it is a a uh, kind of, I guess you could say, it's a conventional uh, shifting of the way we understand what's going on, in a way that alerts us to certain dynamics and processes that we have overlooked before, right? And that I think are important to understand, uh, particularly for understanding how modern came to be, and to basically to answer that question that I asked at, at the beginning of the book, which is how do we get here? Right? So the conventional narratives are all what I would call um, domestic-centered or internalist, right? That what happens to policing is more or less shaped only by what's happening uh, on our city streets um, and happening within the US. Now, it's you notice, what's interesting is this, this term militarization begins to bring in the army, the military, which brings in something going on overseas, right? So even the idea of militarization should be a window into connecting what's happening on city streets and and what's happening to police with something outside the u s. But in fact, um, that hasn't fully been explored yet in the existing literature. And so again, with exceptions like Stuart Schrader's book, where he looks at police officials going abroad, um generally, we we I think much of the literature I came across is is internalist and domestic, right So one of the things that my book does is, I think, allow us, I would hope, it allows us to understand how there's all these connections between what's happening in the streets of Chicago or in London with all of these other sites of colonial violence and colonial coercion, direct connections, um, and that then we can no longer, I would, I would argue or suggest at least, we can no longer think about these things going on in in in, in the U.S. or Britain as as isolated from what's going on. Um, overseas and with empire. And so I, to me that is interesting and that's why I explore it. Um I, I think it, it 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 connects not only historiographies, right? It connects US history say not only with British history but US history with with the colonial history of these other countries that are involved from the Philippines to India to you know Puerto Rico and 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 um Vietnam other other sites. Um it connects those histories and historiographies, but it also should um compel us to understand how policing is not a domestic institution it is a global institution that is intimately connected with globally circulating and i would argue global formations of power that are deeply racialized and in other words deeply imperial and colonial um so yeah i think that i don't know i think that that's um a different way of of understanding policing <laughs> that that is informative i i would think so
1: well i think i i agree and i think it's absolutely is especially because you are taking this militarization concept and saying it's not just about militarization it's about this colonial boomerang and so one of the things that stands out actually in this book is that there are there are numerous examples of um colonial or imperial tools or logics that are not militaristic on their face, right? Um, so, like your example of fingerprinting stands out as as one example um, where we can understand that there's there's something going on here. This global connection, this this imperial and colonial connection, that isn't just about the relationship between the military and the police, as important as that is. And it, I think it's important to point out. Being this, somebody skeptical of of this configuration might say sure there are swat teams and tactical units and emergency response teams but those are just compartmentalized pieces of police departments it's not as the whole department is militaristic you know your regular beat then right so somebody might sort of who's skeptical of this configuration might think that so i guess i'm wondering if you could bit more about the power of these non-militaristic tools uh, and how it elucidates those imperial connections beyond,
0: you know, MRAPs and and tear gas and things like that. Right. That's a great question. And this, I think, gets at this more capacious definition of militarization that Peter Kraska offers us. Um, and so just in that example you gave, I mean, a lot of those things that you're talking about, right? So you have fingerprinting, um, you know, versus, uh, you know, MRAPs or um uh uniform you know uh shield you know riot shields and so on um all this equipment versus all these other more subtle techniques or even you mentioned beat cop i mean one of the interesting things that i learned from this research is how all of those things that don't even seem to be connected to militarization or much less connected to colonialism actually have deep connections so um one of the things i show for example is the whole formation of the beat cop and the beat patrol comes from um the 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 slave patrols and militia slash slave patrols like basically these are militia operations which is obviously militarized and so you know the first beat patrols were formed by the uh, by Charles Rowan one of the co commissioners of the London Metropolitan Police and the idea of a beat a cop walking around a particular swaths of territory you, Rowan took directly from the uh militia slave patrols that he was familiar with which remember started not in southern united states well, what they started in the caribbean and then they came up into um the, the 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 american south but it it comes from the british right so um that's already getting us at a uh at a more transnational or international approach but but so you know even the beat patrol which we don't see as having this connection to military militarized colonial or imperial history is actually part of that history right um fingerprinting right invented in more or less invented and perfected in india by the british um and 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 it becomes used as a tool to surveil um racialized subjects in london late 19th century you know also colonial origins i mean i guess one of the one of the things that really excites me about my findings, so to speak, as we sociologists say, findings, is just really how much it attests to something that we already understand from post colonial theorists or what post colonial studies often hypothesizes but doesn't always show, which is how much of things that we take, to take for granted and take not to be connected to imperialism or colonialism mili- or imperial militarism are, in fact, you know from these sons. So even the very idea of a centralized uniform police force with the internal hierarchy and and officers called surgeons, I show in the book also, that begins with the London Metropolitan Police, but it's modeled after the Dublin police and the and the um uh colonial forces in Ireland. Um and even those we forget are militarized already. So you know it, the police is militarized slash colonialized, whatever you want to say, all the way down. Um, and even though we don't think of these tactics or tools or technologies or forms, organizational forms, as colonial or militaristic, they are, right? You know, I'm not going to say everything about the is, but so many of the things that we talk about and don't assume to be or don't think about as being imperial or colonial or militaristic actually are. Um, and so, you know, this is one of the interesting tasks of the book is to um, sort of peel back the layers of of policing it and we we take police we take these things for granted right we take beat patrols for granted we take even even this you know we often take the fact that that police um have an internal hierarchy and that they're uniformed we take that for granted as well but this is an invention a social product which also gets at this sort of sociological aspect this these are creations and there's no natural necessity to them they are created under definite conditions and they are informed by these colonial and military um forms and organizational forms um that again that that we we i argue have to understand if we're going to understand everything about policing
1: yeah and so we we learned a lot in this book about Peeling back those layers, like you said, in order to see these colonial connections. And some of them are hidden also by intention as well. Um, And so you talk, for example, about uh, police officials and institutions working to obscure the military and imperial lineage of some of these tools. Uh, In your words, they do so in the interests of performing civility. So can you talk a little bit more about those civil performances and and the 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 sort of the project of obscuring this history on the part of of the police?
0: Yeah, that's also a good question because this um language of the civil police is of course the language of police itself. Police historians, uncritical police historians have unfortunately adopted it as reality when you know critical police historians already know that the idea of the civil police which remember was born with the london metropolitan police in which the united states then adopts as its model as opposed to say the french gendarmerie or the continental military police forces that this idea of the civil police um uh, is not a reality it's well the civil police is not a real form it's just an ideal and it's a label that is ideological right it's it's kind of you know to be simplistic about it it's kind of a ruse so um what the police have to do and what i show in the book from the very beginning to to legitimate policing is to create the image of the civil police to create the image of this as a police force of and by citizens and it's going to operate according to a model of civility and all these things and you know uh, police historians would know that you know the peels principles and all this stuff that's supposed to embody this, you know, to, the early forms of to protect and serve ideology, right? Um, this goes to the civil police, but I argue, you know, and you could find it, it's really a performance. So when, for example, Peel creates the London Metropolitan Police, um, he adopts colonial and militaristic forms like uniforms, military hierarchy, um, and tactics. But he's also very careful to try to legitimate the police force. Um, by, for example, making sure that the police don't have guns, and when they are do have weapons like batons, he tells them to hide them and keep them hidden from view. Um, he has them uniformed, um, but not not the not in the the British Army's red uniforms, but the blue uniforms, which, by the way, was the color of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. And I and I, I'm guessing that um, Rowan may be, uh, I mean um, Peel probably. I'm not sure if he actually thought that that would. The fact that the blue uniforms were the Dublin Metropolitan Police—if um, he thinks that would fool his, you know, uh, the the other the public in London. But basically, all of these things to have a powerful militarized colonial force, but but that has to be legitimated to certain publics. And so, I really think it's crucial to think about this as performance. And here again, I'm very sociological because performances have audiences. And what one of the underlying arguments of the book is that this militarization, um, at least in the beginning, is um, uh, is it's aimed at uh, repressing um, peoples who are perceived as barbaric, or in some cases, like in London, actual Irish. Right? I argue that the London Metropolitan Police was actually created in response to to the arrival of Irish uh, into England. Um, and, and and the performance is not for them, it's for the publics, right? So, you know, before Peel created the uh, London Metropolitan Police, there was a lot of concern that the English public wouldn't accept it. Like they were worried about having a uniformed police, they would associate it with the French, they hated the French, um, and they, they worried that uh, that kind of um, policing system on English soil would be tyrannical. And Peel had to worry about this. Peel had to then legitimate this force um, through these what I'm calling performances um, and perform the civil police. Um, and so there's this dance that has to be, you know, that that you have to have a force that's powerful enough and that scares away the perceived racialized uh, barbarians, but you have to also signal that this militarization, this militarized force, isn't for you, you being the the white publics. Right or the the English publics in this case, but also a, a similar dynamic happens in the United States. So there's performance, there's audiences, um, and there's this um, you know this dance of militarization. So you know it's not as if right. So militarization is also a misleading term in that it's not as if police adopt everything whole scale without any modulation. The military they have to adjust it and 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 play with it in certain ways that. Um, enable them to be able to do this performance of the civil police. So it's a very complicated ideological ruse that leads to real, um, real uh, sort of modulation of of militarized forms and tactics.
1: So that last point really gets at this this third argument that you're making in the book, which you know you deal. It, it, you deal with the fact that these colonial repertoires are always available to the police to import via the boomerang. they can they can always take components of it, but they don't always, right? And so there are specific conditions where you you say that the specific the specific condition is the perception of a racialized threat uh, that it accelerates or maybe facilitates the the importation of these colonial tools. Uh, and so I'm wondering if you could give us some specific examples where the absence of that threat made it so they didn't inc- bring in these tools? Or so, or some, some of the good examples from the book where the presence of it or the perception of the presence of it
0: meant that the police did bring in these tools? Yeah. So I one of the examples that comes to mind because I was just in Vermont has to do with Vermont. So after World War II in the 1950s, a lot of cities were undergoing, as again, historians would know, um, sort of a perceived darkening of cities with a lot of um, immigrants, racialized immigrants coming into cities and entering cities. And there was also an accompanying perceived rise in crime. There was almost a moral panic about how these cities were now these sites of crime, even though statistically like crime wasn't necessarily um rising in a lot of these cities um and i argue in the book that that led in places like new york and chicago to the creation of these tactical patrol units which are essentially early swat units and that these are forms of policing that are taken from the colonies from the british empire and from the us empire Um, but one place it didn't happen was in vermont (laughs) and with the creation of the vermont state police Um, Earlier, the formation of the Pennsylvania State Police had been heavily militarized in 1905 when the the first state police was formed, and and it was heavily a colonial force with a lot of um, uh, uh, veterans of the um, Philippine-American War and veterans from the Philippine Constabulary. But this Vermont State Police did not adopt the forms and tactics of colonial units. It did not create a kind of tactical patrol force. Um, even though what's interesting is even though the guy who founded the police was a man named Merritt Edson, who was a former vet who had served in these very tactical patrol forces in Nicaragua and in, in in various places in in the peripheries of the US Empire. So you would assume that this veteran would implement these these colonial forms, but in fact he didn't at first. And I argue it's because Wolf well, Vermont, there was no perceived racialized threat, right? Um, and at that time, the the idea of the sort of rural slash suburban um, was being constructed as a white space as a, a as as a a space that therefore is free freer from crime and so that's one example right so where you should have seen a kind of militarized force because you have this military veteran who knew everything about these colonial and military forces, but he didn't. And I argue it's because there was this absence of a racialized threat. So that's just one example. And I think there's many other examples in the book that we could talk about. Um, but that that's just one example. And so, yeah, the larger argument is that militarization um, is ad- essentially, and even from the very founding of police, is formed to to basically target certain populations. So I argue that even the London Metropolitan Police, the New York Police, the Savannah Police, they were created precisely to target certain populations, right? They were not meant for, you know, the white folks or, you know, e- uh, much less the, even Even I would argue not necessarily created for targeting the white workers, right? Which is where my argument di- diverges from some of the classic Marxist historiography. Um, but they were created for, in response to and to target these particular um racialized groups. And so you see this with the London Metropolitan Police. Once it's formed, what happens to arrests of, of Irish, you know, that the proportion of arrests of Irish go up. Um, and so you see this common pattern. Um, and it's, it's so uh, this gets at this civil force idea. So on the one hand, police have to militarize and arm themselves in response to this perceived racialized threat that's meant to target certain groups, but doing so risks... Uh, making white publics fearful and and make them, because they, they don't want to be subject to this either, right? But so in a sense, the police um, end up having to portray themselves um, as, you know, to protect and serve them, right? So there actually is a, a racialization to that very ideology as well. Um, and this is not to say that the police don't then end up using militarized tactics on white workers, right? We know in the early 20th century that once the police are militarized, they actually use those tactics on um, all the industrial strikes um, and, and they use them on white workers, for example. Um, but I would argue that, you know, that's only after those tactic tactics and forms have been first snuck in, legitimated by the racial threat. The once they're in, once they're in the repertoire, and I like that you use that that term, Jeffrey. It's great because you know once it's in the repertoire, it can be used on any populations, even though initially it's used for you know the 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 darkened proletariat, right? So you know I would argue that you know if, I don't think I say it in the book, but now uh, I, I I would I would probably phrase it this way, right? So um, you know race becomes the Trojan horse for militarized policing. It's the way in which it's it's legitimate and snuck in and that then can be used on other populations.
1: Yeah, and and explaining it that way touches on another point that I think you make in the conclusion that's it really clarifies sort of the long durée of this history which is that you talk about military militarization being both cyclical and linear and that it follows the cycles that you just described but it's linear because there's sort of a, an accumulation of Th- these colonial repertoires, I guess so we'll continue to use the term. Um, and I think that that's really helpful for for understanding what's happening here and breaking through the, oh, no, police have always been militarized. No, it's a new thing. No, they've always been, you know. And so that really is helpful in sort of clearing that up that, yes, it can be cyclical and there are moments, the waves of militarization, as you say, but there's also sort of a, a march where there's, the, you know, steady linear march toward more and more, uh, you know, military stuff. Basically,
0: yeah, yeah. There's like a layering upon layering of military forms, and so a it's it's so layered that we only see the top and we forget the bottom. Um, so that gets back to this thing we were talking about earlier: how we don't recognize all these things. Um, but b it also means that um, you know, there's never a reversal. I would say, of of militarization, right? Even though when you have this history of waves. Um, and you have these moments when the police aren't adopting, actively adopting militarized tools, which is really the trough, right? In this way, um, that doesn't mean that they're actually shedding themselves of any militarized stuff. And I have yet to see any much evidence of any shedding of militarized stuff. So that gets at this constant, yeah, this linear history or this this growth trend, right? That is only punctuated by these waves. And, you know, that leads to the question of, um, of course, what could be done, um, and 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 so on, but but definitely, what I don't see much to my dismay is any retreat, any significant retreat on the on the militarization front. It's just a constant accumulation.
1: Yeah, and I was saving this question until the very end, but uh, it's that's a good segue, so I'll ask it. Which is that militarization is very much a part of the mainstream discourse on policing, and you talked about this in your story about how you came to this project in the first place. Um, but it's it's part of our lexicon currently and how folks are talking about the police in the United, at least in the United States. Um, I suspect in many other places as well. Um and I guess the that leads me to a question, which is that we've talked we've talked a lot about the scholarship and the scholarly interventions, et cetera. But what would you want a more general audience to take away from this book in order to 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 understand how we got where we are or or what can be done? That's what made me think of the question. Um, yeah,
0: i'll I'll leave it there. That's a that's a, a also a really crucial question. So thanks for asking that. And I'm not, you know, I'm stuck here in the ivory tire of the University of Chicago. (laughs) So I don't always um, have to confront this question. So I I very much appreciate that. And it's a crucial question. I'd say a couple of things. One is um, the record. I just I want people to understand, one, that policing is an institution that has been created to perform certain functions um, that are not the functions that it says it is, right? So to recognize policing as an institution like so many others that lies, right? Or intentionally or unintentionally or unwittingly or wittingly, um, all of its, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, of, of, you know, the, this, just as an example, this civil police discourse or to protect and so, you know, what's really going on is, is uh, this is an institution created to maintain a racialized, and I would say imperial order. Um, and i would really urge people to recognize that and so it's not as if police are sometimes racist and sometimes not just this it's just this, it's not that they're sometimes militaristic and sometimes not right it's all the way down and and the very institution has been forged um uh, uh, as a racialized colonial institution the the other thing is that um we publics are deeply implicated in this because you know this this racialized threat and this image of the the criminal as this sort of racialized other who is intrinsically violent and barbaric and savage and who's coming like a savage on the frontier coming to steal your stuff and kill you <laughs> and, and 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 this is an image of course that warrants and justifies militarized policing but it's not an image that only the police share right this is an image that white publics hold and in a sense white publics are implicated in letting the police or even giving police a license to, to arm themselves on the assumption that criminals are these, you know, barbarians, right? On the assumption of this, this colonial image, this colonial stereotype. Um, And, and yeah, I think white publics are deeply implicated. It's not police officials are doing this, I think in response to, to win white publics favor and they're doing it at the behest of white publics, even though we, you know, we might not realize that. So the other thing I want us to get us to realize is how this policing institution is, is yes, ultimately racist and colonial, but that publics are, um, everyday citizens are implicated in that. Right. And so we really have to question to what extent these views are true. I mean, are, are criminals, um, like these colonial barbarians that we imagine, intrinsically unable to understand law, intrinsically violent, or are they not human beings? And are our fellow citizens not human beings? So I also think that we need to understand um, and, and question those kinds of stereotypes that we have and that we hold and that the police hold and that legitimates militarized policing in the first place. Um, yeah, that's, those are a couple of things that, that come to mind.
1: Well, I think that that would be a, a hard finishing note to top. Um, so we've uh, we've taken up a lot of your time, Dr. Go. Um, and I'll just, as a final question that we like to ask on the show, um, is there a new project that you've uh, got your sights set on uh, that
0: that you're excited about moving forward? Yeah, I'm really interested. One of the things this has got me realized is two things. Um, one, a lot of the Forces of violence and forms of violence are created and, and innovated in the periphery. So that also should mean that resistance to those forms of violence um, conjure innovations, but in the periphery. So I'm really interested in anti-colonial struggle. I'm really interested in, in, in anti-colonial resistance. I'm interested in, in, in these sites which are in the peripheries, right? And so I think that if we want to understand um, innovation when it comes to resistance. It, it, it logically follows from my arguments and, and the things I'm finding in the book to look to the periphery. Um, okay. And th- that's also very much uh, akin to and, and keeping in line with a lot of my other research.
1: And that that sounds like a fantastic project. And you nod to that a little bit in the conclusion of this book as well, I think. Um, so we look forward to seeing that down the road. And we want to say thanks for joining us today and sharing your work. Again, Julian Goh's new book is Policing Empires, militarization, race, and the imperial boomerang in Britain and the US. And you can find it out now from Oxford University Press. Dr. Goh, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Jeffrey.